0: In France in 1789, many Parisians were fed up with their king, Louis the 16th. He was in debt and was taxing the poor to raise money. France was also experiencing food shortages and a nationwide economic depression. Meanwhile, aristocratic society continued to live their luxurious lifestyles while the rest of the country suffered. A new group of dissatisfied citizens formed an organization called the National Assembly. They demanded change. Louis XVI set up military forces around Paris to control this new assembly. On July 14, 1789, the National Assembly gathered outside the Bastille, a prison fortress that was rumored to contain weapons and ammunition. The rebels stormed the Bastille, freed its prisoners, slaughtered its governors, and seized the weapons and ammo. This event kicked off a decade-long uprising known as the French Revolution. This day is remembered in France as Bastille Day and is celebrated every 14th of July. Today, the storming of the Bastille is seen as a victory for democracy.
1: But for Burke, it was an event that turned toward violence and it ended up with the heads of a couple of officials on Pike. It was a crowd action where the soldiery, the Swiss soldiers, the palace guard, and so on, utterly lost control of order in the streets. I'm David Bromwich. Uh, I'm professor of English at Yale.
0: Edmund Burke was a British government official who saw the revolution as a mob action. He wrote a book called Reflections on the Revolution in France. It was published in 1790, one year after the French Revolution officially began.
1: And it was influential in making people think hard about the cost of what Burke calls a total revolution or a radical revolution that attempts to break with the past in the starkest possible way. That's how he interpreted the events in France of 1788 and
0: 89 and 90. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor David Bromwich to discuss Reflections on the Revolution in France. The book began as two letters, Shortly after the National Assembly stormed the Bastille, French aristocrat Charles Jean Francois Dupont asked Burke his impressions on the revolution. Burke replied with two letters. The second letter became Reflections on the Revolution in France.
1: And it builds on his responses, I think, to events as they progressed, and as he would have said, as they um, uh, dis- headed towards dissolution or some sort of uh, re- regressive. Uh, a tendency against constitutional democracy and liberty.
0: Burke was against the revolution. He argued that it would take a huge toll, and perhaps there were ways to improve the current government instead of overthrowing it.
1: So it's a pessimistic book, uh, and at the same time, it's a highly energetic work of reflection on the principles of politics in general by a leading uh, advocate, he would say, defender of uh, a liberal constitution in Britain.
0: Burke was a government official for the Whig Party in England. He had supported liberal causes in the past, including the independence of the United States. What do we know about his biography?
1: Burke came from what we would call, you know, solid uh, middle-class beginnings. Um, And Burke had a good education, uh, first at what was probably a hedge school for non-conforming families uh, out in the country in uh, Ireland. Then... At a Quaker school run by a man named Abraham Shackleton and finally at uh, Trinity College Dublin which he entered at the age of 15.
0: After graduating he moved to London to study law at the Honorable Society of the Middle Temple. He soon abandoned law to pursue a career as a writer.
1: So Burke has an early career um, as a man of letters uh, and gets to be known uh, for his considerable knowledge of history, of politics, of the classics, of literature, uh, in his 20s.
0: One of his first works was A Vindication of Natural Society, a satirical comment on Lord Bolingbroke's Letters on the Study and Use of History. In the text, Burke mocks Bolingbroke's ideas of naturalism. What was the debate over um, naturalness in political life?
1: The theory of natural society was that you hardly need government at all. But what it is is obvious just from uh, our reason; from it can be deduced from what we understand to be right and proper for people in society, and that it doesn't it doesn't need a great deal of arrangement. Burke always thought differently. Always thought, as he says in Reflections, that government uh, is a contrivance of human wisdom to provide for human wants, and the great word there is, is contrivance. So government is an artifice. It's not something natural. And Burke thought pretty much from the beginning of his career, the whole idea of natural rights ought to be looked at closely before you say exactly what they are.
0: Naturalists believed that, left to their own devices, people could govern themselves without the need of a strong central ruler. Burke disagreed, and he thought that citizens weren't educated enough to make this work. He thought there needed to be qualified elected officials to make the decisions. He believed in having a central king or president-like figure.
1: Burke seems to have been well known uh, to the highest ranks of people in ladders as well as politics uh, in London. How he got there is a bit of a mystery, but already in 1764, he is a founding member of the club, along with Sir Joshua Reynolds and uh, Samuel Johnson.
0: The club was an exclusive dining club that met weekly for dinners and discussion at the Turks Head Tavern in London. Along with Burke, other founding members included artist Joshua Reynolds and writer Samuel Johnson. There were nine original members in total.
1: These people all expected young Burke, then in his 30s, um, to make a great figure in the country, and he did as soon as he entered Parliament.
0: He got his seat in Parliament in 1765, kicking off his career in politics.
1: And Burke makes a maiden speech and is admired uh, at once by the next speaker, Lord uh, Chatham, uh, who was the, the most renowned orator in Britain at the time.
0: Meanwhile, in North America, the 13 British colonies along the eastern coast of what is today the United States were rebelling against Great Britain. They were being heavily taxed by the British government without colonial representation in Parliament. The colonies protested, They wanted independence from British rule. The British government, on the other hand, wanted to maintain control of the colonies and continue taxing them. Starting in the early 1770s, the colonists began boycotting British goods. By 1775, the first battles erupted between the colonists and British government. This led to a full-on war known as the American Revolution.
1: The American uh, Revolution was to him, as it was to many Americans who became readers of Burke and admirers of him, it was the consequence of an overambitious British foreign policy that preferred coercion to persuasion and that wanted to tax Americans against the will of the Americans themselves. But Burke was not for uh, equal representation, as some Americans at least pretended uh, to favor. Um, He was for keeping America in the empire and letting the general assemblies of the American provinces and colonies tax themselves as they wished.
0: Burke wanted to keep America in the British empire by making them partners in a large Anglo-American trade alliance. He thought it was better to accept a gradual change to the relationship with the American colonies rather than risk a full-on revolution. But his opposition to revolution was not fully political. For him, it was a moral issue as well.
1: Burke. Uh, was opposed to war in most settings. Um, He didn't like violence and he thought that sudden change tended to be associated with violence.
0: Burke was hopeful that there was a way to keep America in the British Empire if they got some of the changes they wanted.
1: The French Revolution was, as he called it, total revolution. He says uh, that the revolutionists are at war with heaven itself
0: Burke saw the potential ripple effect of the French Revolution stretching beyond just France.
1: In a couple of suggestive passages of the book, he compares the coming of the French Revolution, which he identified with the coming of democracy and the possible spread of it across Europe. Um, he, He associates it with the coming of Christianity. It's going to be that revolutionary change. And as this is an implicit analogy, I think, As Christianity overthrew the Roman Empire, so democracy will do to what Burke believed to be the mixed system of opinion and sentiment that constitutes Christian Europe.
0: Christian Europe held much of the power. It was associated with high society, chivalry, and hostility toward conquest and new money.
1: He thought the French revolutionists were men of new money. They were a new class of people. Um, but they were also uh, treating their own country, as he says, uh, as a country of conquest. Um, how does this show itself? Well, Burke dramatizes very acutely uh, and unforgettably uh, two events of the revolution, uh, the storming of the Bastille, which in heroic accounts of the revolution, of course, is one of their precious moments. It's It's something that the Advocates of the revolution themselves celebrated the 14th of July. And then, more important for him, the October days, October 4th, 5th, and 6th, when a Parisian crowd roused to fury, marched to Versailles and threatened uh, to kill the queen, pursued her, and almost did succeed in killing her. And then, with the intervention of Lafayette, the crowd was calmed down and they marched the king and queen forcibly back to Paris as captives of the new democracy.
0: Six months after the storming of the Bastille, 7,000 armed Parisian women marched to Versailles, where King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette were living. The crowd was fed up with the taxes and rising bread prices and demanded a fair price for bread. They also demanded the king and queen move from Versailles back to Paris, the center of the revolution. Lafayette, the commander of the National Guardsmen, persuaded the king to follow the crowd's demands. The king and queen were marched back to Paris, where they were essentially
1: captives. So it's this idea of mass action, of the crowd taking control, um, that uh, Burke feels uh, most repugnant and that he dramatizes for his readers so that we're, um, what to say, encouraged to think of the whole revolution as this sort of ungoverned mass action that's going to lead to a new kind of despotism, to what later writers will call uh, democratic despotism or even totalitarianism.
0: The crowd favored naturalism, believing they could govern themselves and form a government that was completely identified with the people and their interests. But according to Burke, that wouldn't work. In order to preserve liberty, the people need a government to hold accountable. And mob rule wasn't a government at all. And in the end, this diffuse power wasn't sustainable. Someone would come to power, and they would end up with a government that was worse than the one before it.
1: Burke's attack on the French Revolution is also more than implicitly an attack on democracy and, and a warning against what it would bring.
0: Now, what's fascinating about this is it seems like he's, he's fearful of mob rule because of its um, lack of accountability. But I also know that the text is really against abstract thought or abstract plans. And I'm curious about the relationship between the two. Like, Did he believe that mobs could be whipped up by abstract ideals that weren't connected to practical, organic realities of political life?
1: The uh, questions Burke raises about uh, what he calls in places speculation, in places he'll call it theory, in places he'll call it metaphysics, um, is not about the immediate effect of philosophical ideals or spun out abstract ideas on the popular audience, but the, the oversimplification involved in working up a theoretical blueprint for government in the first place.
0: Revolutions, as he saw it, were usually built on three oversimplified principles diluted by the revolutionary leaders for the people. One, individual rights. Two, the right of the people to choose their own system of government. And three, the right of the people to choose their leaders.
1: And of course, people are convinced easily by simple ideas, but they are in this case, a case of government, Burke says, Um, simple ideas unsuited to the complexity of the object. Society is a complex entity, and for Burke, uh, society itself um, is so complex a web of persons' interests, potentially conflicting interests, that it needs a great deal of wisdom uh, in the governor uh, to know how to manage it well and manage it for the benefit of the people.
0: This was contrary to the beliefs of political activist Thomas Paine, Burke's rival in the French Revolution debate.
1: Because Paine thought uh, that government was, in fact, simple, comprehensible, uh, and there was a great deal of mystification about government and its necessary outworks, the bureaucracies, the what what was beginning to be the beginnings of a civil service in Britain and so on. Um, these things that people could not understand easily were probably hidden things that were the sources of corruption.
0: But it wasn't just the complexity that was the problem for Burke. He was also suspicious of these revolutionary leaders' true intentions.
1: By metaphysicians, by speculators, by theorists, Burke means also people who can whip up the force of the whole people, of the populace, having their own plans, their own designs at heart. Burke didn't think that um, the conspiracy of a few to get more power was ever out of sight for long in politics. His suspicion of mere right, some sort of universal right, which the revolutions are announcing they're acting in the cause of, um, pry under it a little. What's their real cause? What's their real interest in the revolution? do they not want to engross power to themselves? And we should add here that the book is not really hoping to convert the French against the revolution that they have begun by making, but it's hoping to influence England away from uh, the pattern of the French Revolution. The, the complete title of the book uh, gives that impression very adequately, because the, the complete title is, Reflections on the revolution in France and on the proceedings of certain societies in London relative to that event in a letter intended to have been sent to a gentleman in Paris. And that last clause is, is perhaps mischievous, because the implication might be you can't send a letter to anybody in Paris anymore. There's too much chaos. I'm not even sure it'll get through.
0: So what was the reception to the publishing um, at the time? Um, Did it have a great impact in Britain and beyond?
1: Sold 10,000 copies. Um, Payne's reply to it in The Rights of Man sold uh, copies in the hundreds of thousands within two or three years by the time he wrote part two, which is an all-out defense of democracy as such. So we're dealing with a new era in the late 18th century, an era that America plays a crucial role in, um, of political debate in writing, much of it done at a level of sufficient complexity, a a, a kind of um, statesman-like complexity and polemical um, toughness that we're not used to, I think, anymore.
0: Reflections came out at a time when sophisticated written debates were highly popular, and the text helped shape the political conversations in Europe at the time.
1: But Burke, Burke's book is uh, influential immediately because it starts the great debate on the revolution in France. Um, it's already being called the French Revolution and an interesting puzzle might hang on his odd choice of a phrase in calling it the revolution in France. I think it's a strong probability that he there too, he's nudging the reader and saying, Now it's in France. Soon it will be in Europe. Watch out.
0: In some ways, it seems like it has set the ongoing debate between conservatives and progressives. And, you know, Burke is still referred to in a way that I don't think pain is. So in some ways, he's outlasted his rival, although I could be wrong. But walk us through what is the legacy of Burke uh, among political movements or political ideas that we recognize today?
1: Well, I should begin with uh, the history of his reception earlier on, because there's a good article by J.J. J. Sack going back to 1987, and he found that there's very little mention of Burke in parliamentary debates in the next generation. Um, he's thought to be a great figure, but why and how to use him is a bit of a puzzle. In the 19th century, he becomes a hero of free trade liberals in Britain.
0: In his lifetime, Burke was a supporter of free trade. He believed in economic liberty and private property. This was not a stance usually held by those with conservative political beliefs.
1: It's very hard to get the right name for Burke. Conservative is the name generally given to him now. If there were a word for preservative, (laughs) a preservationist rather than uh, what we call a political conservative, it might be more appropriate, because Burke says that, you know, in his view, um, a uh, a disposition to preserve and an ability to improve are the necessary talents for a statesman. And anything else, he adds, is uh, vulgar in the conception, perilous in the execution. But yes, on the whole, the idea that in a liberal society, which already benefits uh, let's say the majority, the majority passed the point where they would want to invoke a right of resistance. In that kind of society, gradual change ought to be the principle.
0: In the 20th century, his reputation among liberals shifted as socialist ideals spread across Europe. Equality became more emphasized as the central principle among the European and North American left. And Burke's ideas about equality didn't quite line up with theirs.
1: Burke was skeptical about equality. He thought a decent life should be allowed to everyone. You should be allowed um, to the, the, the fruits of your labor, which means he's against slavery. You should be allowed, as he says, education in life and and um, comfort in death. That is to say, you should have your own choice of religion. There are many kinds of liberty which imply toleration and which imply a right of life. That Burke. Um, thinks are necessary, but not the sort of equality that comes to be identified with socialism and left-wing liberalism in the 20th century. So Burke becomes their antagonist and the hero of people who want to resist all of that, beginning in the 1920s, 1930s or so.
0: Would you say then it's appropriate for him to be considered the father of modern conservatism?
1: Burke deserves to be called conservative for many reasons. Um I don't know that he can be considered the founder of any ism. Um, but the idea that a certain uh, idealism, uh, a, ut- a utopian speculative energy, once it gets into politics, can drive politics over the brink, that suspicion in Burke is, is, um, is very powerful. And I think people who have encountered it in him um, start to feel, again, reinforced in their own suspicions. I'll read one passage to that effect. This is from Burke's letter to a noble lord, uh, which he was writing in uh, December 1795, January 1796. And he says, it is no easy operation to eradicate humanity from the human breast. What Shakespeare calls the Impunctious visitings of nature will sometimes knock at their hearts and protest against their murderous speculations. They have a means of compounding with their nature. Their humanity is not dissolved. They only give it a long prorogation, English word meaning temporary adjournment of parliament. These revolutionists allow themselves to be inhumane for an indefinite period. It's just like a prorogation of parliament. They are, and this is about ends and means. This is about how revolutionary radicals justify any means by the profoundly good end they think they have in view. So Burke goes on characterizing them. Um, their humanity is not dissolved, they only give it a long prorogation. They are ready to declare that they do not think 2,000 years too long a period for the good that they pursue. It is remarkable that they never see any way to their projected good, but by the road of some evil. Their imagination is not fatigued with the contemplation of human suffering through the wild waste of centuries added to centuries of misery and desolation. Their humanity is at their horizon, and like the horizon, it always flies before them. So the language there, that the image maybe comes out of Macbeth, Um, But if you've read histories of the Russian Revolution on into its Stalinist phase, or histories of Germany from the 30s into the 40s, there are extraordinary um, premonitions in a passage like that. But it it is as if Burke saw, with his morbid imagination... um, Something of just how deeply into evil human nature was capable of plunging itself if it thought it had a great cause in view. And if it ceased to know itself, if it came into what he calls a means of compounding with our nature.
0: What you said does strike me that, you know, maybe the fundamental difference between what we understand as conservatives versus liberals or progressives is a view of human nature is on the one hand original sin and our possibility for depravity uh, left to our own devices um, versus a vision of innate goodness that you know is only influenced for for bad by oppressive systems.
1: I do think that uh, if you've had some reservations, some suspicion, um, some remorse in yourself from a bit of self-knowledge and from your observation of other people and being able to connect the two, um, you you begin to, as Burke puts it, you begin to fear yourself. If you don't fear God, you acquire some version of the fear of man. And that means don't do too much too fast and don't be too sure of the amount of good you can do. Um, and I think that that suspicion is, let's call it, it tends to put the brakes on plans for sudden radical complete overhaul of anything of a household um but also of of a society which was an infinitely more complex thing and you know i think you do see uh in um radical reformers who haven't had this reservation a sort of commitment they don't answer for and don't even have a language for speaking about um that Human nature is capable of being made, well, fit for natural society, being made such that it has been purged of whatever is wrong in it, and what is wrong is, this, is uh, only created by pr- prejudice and corruption. But the idea of, of, let's call it, something analogous to original sin, of, of original deep fallibility, in human beings, I think that is a that is a conservative intuition, um, and it 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 makes you uh, slow to take up uh, appeals to sudden and total resistance um, to something you can't immediately see as very harmful.
0: You know, how, how does the world look different because of this text?
1: What he would have wanted to say in 1790 is he has made uh, zealous. Idealists for democracy a little less sure of themselves has made them want to take a measure of their projects and think of the complexity of the object with which they are dealing. Um, that he has also wanted to teach again uh, the good of a complex government, a constitutional government of liberty, that has built in checks and limitations from the very complexity of its parts, and that assures certain rights. Um, for example, the preeminent example always, I guess, the right of equal treatment under the law to everyone, not just minorities of race and religion, but minorities of opinion, um, that that a government uh, assuring equal right under the law should, should be of such strong standing that no possible majority can override it. Um, I think Burke would have wanted that result, and I think that that result has been, to a large extent, realized at moments in American constitutional history.
0: Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pecci. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.